Good evening. Thank you for joining us this evening as we have an opportunity to spend some time together in God's Word. Before we get started, I'd like to open us up in a word of prayer. And a couple of things I'd really like for us to focus on in our prayer time this evening is, first off, our missionaries that are still on the front lines. Even in the midst of this pandemic, they are continuing to minister and reach out to people in the towns, villages, and communities with which they're serving. I've had the privilege of talking to several of them over the past couple of weeks. And as they continue to minister in new ways that they have not thought about before or even had to attempt before, they are continuing to proclaim the gospel in the midst of difficult times. But secondly, I would also like for us to pray for an unreached people group. An unreached people group is one where there are not enough indigenous Christians to evangelize the entire population of people. So tonight, I'd like for us to pray for the Iraq people of India. These people are primarily agriculturalists, and very few of them are able to read and write. So in order for them to come to know about Christ, they need to verbally hear the message or to visually see the gospel presented. So tonight, let's open up in a word of prayer. Most gracious God, we just thank you for the time that we have together. Thank you for allowing us, through means that we have not envisioned, to proclaim your gospel. Dear God, I just thank you for the missionaries that are on the front lines, continuing to spread your message. Dear God, we have a unique opportunity in a time where so many are looking for hope and optimism. We have the message of hope, and we have the message of peace, and that is in your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for those that are continuing to minister on the front lines. And we also be in prayer for the Iraq people of India. Dear God, as there is no known Christians among them, we just pray for the missionaries that will be sent or maybe the ones that are even there now as they share your message of hope with the one true God. Dear God, we love you, and we just pray that the time we spend together this evening will draw us closer to you as we spend time with you. For us in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Have you ever heard the phrase, It's better to do something than nothing. Oftentimes you hear that when there is a time of uncertainty about what the next steps are. And someone will usually speak up and say, well, let's just do something. Doing something is better than doing nothing at all. So tonight I'd like to ask you the question, is that always true? Is doing something always better than doing nothing? After all, you have to start somewhere, right? Maybe now is not the best time to actually ask that question since we've been challenged to reduce that which we are doing. Most people are tired of doing nothing and want to get back to doing something. So maybe there's actually a better way to ask this question. What if instead we were to say that we know we have to get from point A to point B? Does it really matter how we get to point B? As long as we get there? I'm sure you've heard the phrase, the end justifies the means. And while we may not like that phrase or we may not even use it, we actually oftentimes operate under that motive. As long as we get there, it really doesn't matter how we got there. I've titled our time together this evening, The How Does Matter. Because the how of what we do does, in fact, matter. Does it really matter how we worship as long as we worship? 
doesn't really matter how we conduct ministries as long as people are coming. Doesn't really matter how we represent a holy God. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles this evening to the Old Testament book of Numbers. Numbers is the fourth book in the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And once you have found the book of Numbers, please turn to chapter 20. While you're locating Numbers chapter 20, let's kind of summarize what has taken place. When we come to Numbers 20, the children of Israel have been wandering in the desert for almost 40 years. Remember that after Moses had led the children of Israel out of Egypt, and he was leading them toward the promised land, he led them miraculously across the Red Sea on dry ground. And as they were coming to the promised land, known as Canaan, they arrived at Kadesh Barnea in Numbers chapter 13. Moses sent out twelve spies to survey the land before they entered. And as those twelve spies went and investigated the land, ten of them came back and said, there's no way that we can conquer that land. But two of those spies, Joshua and Caleb, came back and said, oh, certainly God will give us that land. That land is incredible, stuff like we've never seen before. God will deliver this land to us. But you see, the people rebelled against Moses and Aaron. And they, in fact, wanted to stone them. And in Numbers chapter 14, because of the faithlessness in not believing God, that He would deliver them the land, God punished them and actually made them wander in the desert for 40 years. And according to Numbers chapter 14 and verse 34, they had to wander one year for every day that they had surveyed the land. They had surveyed the land for 40 days. So as a result, they had to wander in the desert for 40 years. Numbers chapter 14 through Numbers chapter 20 really kind of describes those years of wandering for us. So as we come to chapter 20, it's been almost 37 years of wandering since that initial scouting report in Canaan. So with that background, let's open up Numbers chapter 20 and verse 1. Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam died there and was buried there. I'm reading from the New American Standard translation. So when we come to verse 1, they are back at Kadesh. And that is often the focus of verse 1. And it's easy to view verse 1 as just kind of one of those verses that helps us get from verse 1 to verse 2 without really much information. But if you remember a couple of months ago, we talked in one of our Bible studies about how to actually study the Bible and how we need to pay attention to words and phrases because they are all important and they all are significant. So if we look at the end of verse 1, it says, Now Miriam died there and was buried there. Miriam dies. Now there's not much about the death of Miriam. And we may even ask the question, well, who is Miriam? It says that she died, says that she was buried, but that's really all that we are told. But if you remember, way back in Exodus chapter 2, when Moses was born... He was placed in a basket in the Nile River. And if you remember that Moses was taken out of the Nile River by Pharaoh's daughter, 
And Moses' sister went up to Pharaoh's daughter and said, Hey, do you want me to get one of the Hebrew women to take care of this infant child? That was Miriam. And we also see in Exodus chapter 15, after they had crossed the Red Sea, it was Miriam who led the women in a song of celebration as they crossed the Red Sea. Miriam had been with Moses and Aaron all the way back in the beginning. So the fact that Miriam has now died is significant. Even though it's just eight little words, this event has an impact on Moses and Aaron. But when we get to verse 2, there is a rather quick and abrupt shift from the death of Miriam to the people. So let's read verses 2 and 3. And there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. So as we come to verse 2, we find out just how sympathetic the people were and just how grieved they were with Moses and Aaron, right? They were highly supportive encouraging and support and sympathetic toward them. <laughs> yeah, right. It says there was no water and they were not happy. So far during these 40 years of wandering, God had always been faithful to them. God was gracious to them and God was patient with them. But most importantly, God was present with them. You see, for just a moment, think about our own life. When a situation comes up or when things don't exactly go like we think they should, how do we respond? <laughs> I can only respond for myself, but I'm a lot like the Israelites. I respond very similar to the way that they do. I don't take the time to remember God's faithfulness. I don't take the time to remember that God has been present with me. I am more focused on the problem. I'm too busy worrying, complaining, trying to figure out what the next steps are. But we must not be too careful to cast that, that skeptical or critical eye toward the Israelites. Lest we be like the old saying goes, the pot calling the kettle black. You see, when the people began to grumble, they assembled themselves. They came together. Misery loves company, as the old saying goes. And we want to find somebody who agrees with us. Interestingly, though, this same word in Hebrew that is used here about assembling together is the exact same word that is used in Exodus chapter 32. Now, you may not know exactly what was going on there, but in Exodus 32, Moses had ascended up to the mountain to be with God. And the people were grumbling and complaining with Aaron. They said to Aaron, give us a God. We don't know what happened to this Moses guy. But we need a God. And that was when Aaron had led the people in constructing the golden calf. So once again here in Numbers, the people are assembled together against Moses and Aaron. Some translations say that they rebelled or contended or quarreled against or even blamed Moses and Aaron for their situation. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Hebrew... It renders this as they were reviled against Moses and Aaron. The idea is that they were furious 
and they were going to do something about it. We would say today that they are spitting mad or that their blood was about to boil. But notice the congregation's opening statement. If only we had died when our brothers had died. Now that sounds kind of harsh and incredibly ungrateful. They are telling their leaders, we don't know what you're doing. We don't think you know what you're doing. And we wish that we would have died earlier. That we would be better off than what we've got here. Talk about a vote of confidence. Let me pause for just a moment and say that the majority is not always right. The majority just means that there's a group of people that agree on something. We've seen all throughout the life of the children of Israel how the majority has been. But for their sake, they had a godly leader. And they were blessed by that. Now those leaders were human. They made mistakes and they didn't always get it right. But they were still godly leaders. But in the midst of their grumbling, notice the insensitivity toward Moses and Aaron in regards to losing their sister. You see, oftentimes we become so inward focused, self-absorbed, and narcissistic that the result is that we become callous, closed off, ungrateful, and oblivious to those around us and the difficulties that they are facing. That's true both in our personal life. It's also true here inside the church house. You see, that's especially true in our current state that we find ourselves in. You see, let me ask another question. When we look up, metaphorically speaking, when we look up, do we see a mirror or a window? And what I mean by that is, a mirror shows what's immediately in front of us and behind us, which is mainly us. But a window shows actually what's beyond, what's in front of us. Hear me though, perspective is important. Are we inward focused? Are we outward focused? Are we focused on what's behind us or what's in front of us? Now, self-reflection is much different than self-absorption. Self-reflection is not bad, especially as it leads us to repentance. But self-absorption is damaging and unhealthy. You see, because of the Israelites complaining, they neglected the mourning, heartache, and burden that their leaders were carrying. But notice their progression. After the complaining about no water, wishing they were dead, they then played the guilt card. Did you hear it? They said, why have you brought the Lord's people out here to perish? There's nothing here for us, the Lord's people. At least if we had died with our brothers, we knew the Lord was there with us. Have you brought us out here to die? Why did you take us out of Egypt to bring us to this place? Some translations even call it a wretched or evil place where they found themselves. There's nothing here for us. While they didn't say it, they certainly implied that they didn't even think the Lord was there with them. So look at the powder keg that's developing. A leader who's mourning. A people who's complaining. Wishing they were dead. Playing the Lord's people guilt card. And wanting the good old days. We have to be very careful about the good old days analogy. 
Often it's a view that is idealistic and inaccurate. You see, it's in this time and it's in this setting that Moses and Aaron find themselves in a situation where godly leaders lead. When the people seem directionless, godly leaders provide direction. When the people feel hopeless, godly leaders offer hope. When all the people see, all that the people see is darkness, godly leaders point them to the light. The sign of a godly leader is one who helps people shift their focus off of where they are and onto who God is. The sign of a godly leader is one who helps people not to dwell on what's happening, but points them to what God is doing. The sign of a godly leader is one who helps people not to focus on the storm, but focus on God's glory in the midst of the storm. Godly leaders help people rise above the circumstance by pointing them to God. Warren Wiersbe said this, Spiritual leaders pay a price as they seek to serve God's people. But the people usually don't appreciate it. So let's see how Moses and Aaron seek to serve God's people in this incredibly volatile situation. Let's continue reading in verse 4. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into the wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? And why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? It's not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink here. And that's exactly what we've just been talking about. So as, as the people are giving Moses and Aaron this incredibly great feedback, right? Let's, let's look at what Moses and Aaron do. In verse 6, Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meetings and fell on their faces. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to them in the face of a disgruntled congregation and in the face of uncertainty with what to do next. Moses and Aaron did what godly leaders do. They fell on their face before God. They create space between the situation by going from the people to the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, it's easy to blow through that part of the verse and just jump to the end. But we really need to put the brakes on here for just a minute. You see, the tent of meeting was very important and was very significant. Let's briefly go back to Exodus. Exodus chapter 33. And I want to read Exodus 33, verses 7 through 11. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And it came about that everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, And gazed after Moses until he entered the tent. And it came about whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. Now when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship, each at the entrance of his tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. You see, the tent 
was significant. It was a place where God would meet with his people. So when Moses and Aaron fall down before the Lord, it is very important. After all, when they fall down before the Lord, the glory of the Lord appeared. This presence of the Lord, I think, could be twofold. One is to to speak and to give instruction to Moses and Aaron, which we clearly see that in verse 7, which we'll look at in a minute. But secondly, it is to help show the people that the Lord is still with them. Because you remember back in verse 3, you can almost hear the people imply that the Lord was no longer there with them. So when Moses and Aaron fall down on their face before the Lord, the Lord appears. The Lord has not left His people. Likewise for us, when things get tough or when things look uncertain, those that are redeemed in Christ are not alone. We know that the sovereign God is walking with us, comforting us, guiding us, but most importantly, present with us. Is that not what the disciples learned about Jesus when they were afraid in the middle of the storm? That should give us hope and encouragement when those difficult times come. And they will come. So let's look back in Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20 and verse 7 provides a really pivotal point and a pivotal transition for us. And verse 7 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, and you and your brother, Aaron, assemble the congregation, and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock. Let me rephrase that. You shall thus bring forth water from out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So the first thing the Lord does is he speaks. The Lord has not abandoned them and they are not left alone as they thought. And the Lord gives Moses and Aaron very specific instructions. One, pick up your rod and your staff. Two, get everybody together. Three, make sure that everybody is watching And four, speak to the rock. Follow those four steps, then there will be water. You see, the staff or the rod, depending on your translation, has been with Moses from the beginning. All the way back in Exodus chapter 4, when God first called Moses, and he let him know all the plans that he was going to do for rescuing the Israelites, God used Moses' staff to perform miracles as well as to part the Red Sea. Also in Exodus 4, this rod or this staff is called the staff of God or the rod of God. Now, if we fast forward a little bit to Exodus chapter 17, we find that the people are grumbling once again because they didn't have water. And God told Moses almost the exact same thing there. He told him to take up the rod, except in Exodus he said, hit the rock. But here the instructions are just to speak to it. Now, all of those instructions sound like pretty easy steps to take. And the outcome is given. So this seems like a no-brainer for Moses and Aaron. We've got a point A, no water. We've got a point B, water. God gave them a plan to get from point A to point B. So let's see how they execute the plan. Verses 9 through 11. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for this 
for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. So Moses begins to put the wheels in motion to this plan. Step one, he took the rod, the rod or the staff. Check. Step two was to get everybody together. Check. Step three was to make sure that everybody was watching. Check. Step four was to speak to the rock with everybody watching. You see, it's here where things kind of come off the rails a little bit, or actually quite a lot. Instead of just speaking to the rock, Moses actually addressed the people first, halfway through verse 10. See, as the people are watching, Moses said, Okay, you rebels, listen up. Shall we, Moses and Aaron, bring water out of this rock? Now, this seems simple and somewhat harmless, right? Moses is just providing some commentary or some drama for the moment. After all, he has their attention. Their emotions and the tensions were running high. Moses addressed them as rebels. No big deal, right? He's just calling them contentious and disobedient, which they were. In fact, back in Numbers chapter 17, verse 10, God himself even called the people a rebellious people. So he's just echoing God's thoughts, right? In Moses' commentary, he asked the people if him and Aaron should bring water out of the rock for them. You can almost hear a little bit of consternation and aggravation and maybe even a little taunting. But Moses then raised his hand and struck the rock, not once, but twice, with the staff. Now, he had done this before in Exodus 17, which we just talked about. And water came out, so surely everything is fine. So for step four, we can't really give him a check mark or full credit, but we certainly can give him partial credit. You see, the end result was that water came flowing from the rock. Not only that, but it was enough for both the people and livestock. It came out abundantly. So if we were to grade Moses and Aaron on this test, they got three of, three of the steps full credit, one step at least half credit. So they certainly made a C, maybe even a B. C's get degrees, right? But the temptation here is to say, well, the water came out, and the people not only got what they asked for, but they got more than they asked for. They made it from point A to point B. That was all that mattered. And I'm sure that was the people's perspective. They wanted water. God provided it abundantly, even though they were grumbling. But did you notice God's grace to them through this? God is a God of grace and mercy. And isn't that what we just celebrated a few short weeks ago, God giving us much more than we deserve. We deserve death, but Christ gives us new life through His death and resurrection when we place our faith and trust in Him. Now, it would be easy to stop with verse 11. The people got the water they asked for and more. Moses and Aaron got a passing grade on their test. But that's not the way it works when it comes to following God's instructions. There is no partial credit grading scale. There is a but coming, and you can feel it building. 
So we have to read verse 12. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. While the people are off enjoying the water, the Lord is dealing with Moses and Aaron. Because both of you did not trust me or believe in me enough to demonstrate my holiness to all the people, there's a consequence. Wait, 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 what? That wasn't one of the steps. There was the rod. There was the people. There was speaking to the rock while they're watching. And then there was water coming out. Nope, there's nothing there about trust or holiness. So what's the deal? You see, because Moses provided his own commentary and said, Shall we make water come out of this rock? And then striking the rock twice. Moses did not lead the people to respect, worship, and attribute the work that God was doing to the holiness of who He is. They shifted the focus off of what God was doing and onto themselves. You see, there's no record of the people even knowing what God had asked Moses to do. While the people did receive the water, Moses and Aaron received the punishment for how they lived. You see, the second part of verse 12 says, Because you did not treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, you shall not bring the assembly together into the promised land or Canaan. You see, God is very serious about His holiness and His glory and how it is represented. It is not to be shared, stolen, or relegated to the back seat. So I have to ask the question, how do we treat God's holiness? With respect or casually? With joy or with contempt? God was very gracious to the people of Israel by giving them water, even in the midst of their complaining. God was even gracious to Moses and Aaron by giving them specific instructions when they sought His counsel. But we also see how dangerous disobedience is. We see the sin from Moses and Aaron by not believing and trusting in God's instructions. We also see their sin by taking the focus off of God and placing it on themselves with Moses' commentary and his actions. You see, his actions of striking the rock reflect the emotions that was in his heart. And we ultimately see the consequence of their sin by not being allowed to lead the people into the promised land. Sin has a consequence and a price. Sin is serious. And even though Moses and Aaron sinned and were punished, they continued to serve God and lead His people. As we begin to kind of wrap our time up this evening together, I want to close with Numbers 20, verse 24, which deals with the death of Aaron. And it says this, Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the sons of Israel, because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. You see, when we sin, we rebel against God. God doesn't make you, excuse me, sin doesn't make you a bad person. Sin makes you a dead person. Sin is missing the mark that God has set. 
And that mark is complete perfection. None of us can hit that mark. No matter how hard we try or how good we think we are, we fail and we fail miserably. You say, well, that's pretty gloomy and hopeless. And yeah, you're right, it is. So I'll leave you with this thought. The next time you are presented with a question of how, remember the how does matter. The most important how that has ever been or ever will exist is how can I hit the mark if I'm not able to do it, no matter how hard I try. You see, one of my favorite phrases in all of Scripture is, but God. Yes, we are wretched. Yes, we are sinners. Yes, we face trials and temptations. And yes, we fail. Yes, we are hopeless. But God, through His grace, made a way for us. And that way was through His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, when we're born into this world, we are born that hopeless, wretched sinner. Nothing that we can do can earn salvation or the payment of sin. Nothing that we can do can earn favor with God. Nothing that we can do can take that price of sin. It required perfection. And that's when God in His grace made a way. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, from heaven to earth. As a baby, he grew up just as you and I do. But he did not sin. He lived a spotless life, a sinless life. He was tempted like you and I, but he did not sin. And he went to a cross and paid a horrible death on the cross as a payment of sin for you and for me. You see, when He died on the cross, He took our sin with Him. He paid the price of death with His sinless life, His complete, perfect life. And He conquered death. He demonstrated His power over the grave through His resurrection three days later, appearing to multitudes of people. And He ascended to heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father, interceding, praying on our behalf for us. And if we admit that we are a sinner, confess our sins to Him, repent, turn away from our sinful ways and turn to Him, we can have a relationship with Him. We can be restored in that fellowship with Him. We can now hit the mark. But the how is only through Jesus Christ. If you've not made that decision, I encourage you. It is the most important decision you could ever make in your life. One of the questions many are asking today is, how will I make it through this time? The answer is, through Christ and Christ alone. It is only through Him 
that we have hope. It is only through Him that we have peace. And it is only through Him that we have the eternal security of an everlasting relationship with God the Father. Let's close in prayer. Most gracious God, You are holy. Forgive us for when we do not treat that holiness with the respect, the awe, and the fear that it requires. We are sinful, wretched people. Forgive us of our shortcomings. Forgive us when we try to take the place of Your holiness by wanting people to look at us and look at what we're doing. Dear God, may we point them to You. May our lives reflect the glory of Your name. Dear God, may we fall on our face in repentance because we have failed You. Thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your mercy. Thank You for Your love. Above all, thank You for the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and His atoning sacrifice that made a way. Thank You for being the how. God, continue to be with us in this difficult time. Thank you that you're a sovereign God and you know all. In the midst of these difficult times, I pray that you will be glorified. I pray that your name will be exalted on high. And I pray that people will come to a saving relationship with you. May we carry the message of hope. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.